where we are today in chapter 3 is under this broad heading of God is righteous. And Jason last week talked about who are the children of the righteous God. What do, they resemble their Father in heaven rather than uh, the world. And the children of the world, the children of the devil, resemble the world. And this idea of practicing righteousness versus practicing sin or doing righteousness versus doing sin. And, and so John's really just building off of that contrast of the children of God and the children of the devil, those who are righteous and those who aren't. And so he's going to talk about, well, this is how you know if you're one of the children of God. The righteousness that you have is displayed in loving one another. This change that you have, this new birth that you have, is this new heart, this new life is because now you love God and love one another. And he's not going to talk about the Spirit until verse 24, but it's the reason I'm covering this many verses, 13 verses in one week, is I want you to see all the bookends of this. Because if we chop it up too fine, then we start getting away from assurance of salvation into heavy burdens of thinking we'll never make it. We'll never reach it because God's holy and I'm not. So, love is mentioned in verse 11, in verse 14, in verse 16, in verse 17, and in verse 23. And so love and righteousness have to be talked about together. And it's contrasted love with hate in verse 13 with murder in verse 12 and verse 15, with a, a lack of, of loving action. I don't know how to say that. Uh, you know, putting your, your, your money where your mouth is, right? Uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. John says, don't love in just talk only, but it's in deeds, it's in actions. And he contrasts it with empty words in verse 18. But what he's getting at is this contrast that he's made that Jason brought out really well last week that there are those who love God who are God's children and those who do not love God who are the devil's children. And it's no surprise then at the beginning of this section that John reaches back to the story of Cain and Abel. Because in the Garden of Eden when man sinned in Genesis chapter 3, and we see sin enter the world, God says in Genesis 3.15 that He's going to put warfare between the descendants of Eve and the descendants of the serpent. And this warfare has been going on since the beginning of time. And this is what John's talking about is there's children who are of the serpent, the devil, Satan, and, and this world, and, and they're at odds with the children of God. And John is not writing to make us doubt that we're children of God. On the contrary, he's writing that we would be assured that we're in fact in the family. And so he had talked about this in chapter 2. Let's, let's turn back to chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then he talks about these false teachers who were antichrists right after that who went away from us because they weren't of us. And so this contrast is, okay, there's these false teachers, these antichrists who didn't love God, didn't love the brethren, and they went away. And they're not of us. But you all, 
he says, you love God and you love your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this is, should assure your hearts that even if you doubt your righteousness, this is the sign of new life in you that you love. And that's his whole point here. The righteousness of God and His holy character is displayed when we love one another. And so, loving like Jesus, verses 11 to 18, is the evidence of the Father's righteous life in us. It's evidence that God's life is in us. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? To think that not only are we forgiven, right? We, we just had a baptism service. Uh, we, we talked about at the baptism service that when you get dunked under the water, it's a picture of, of being buried with Jesus in his death. And then when you come out of the water, it's a picture of being risen to new life in Jesus. And I did, you know, I didn't leave you under the water. I brought you back up. So that's good, right? Uh, I threatened my nephews that I might, you know, dunk them and not bring them back up. But they, this picture is not just of a new identity. It is. It's a new identity in Jesus. But we also have a new nature. We have new life. We're born again. He's going to get to the Spirit in verse 24. He's been implying this throughout the first three chapters. And, and what he's saying is the fact that you love is evidence that God is in you. Because the world can't love like this. The world doesn't love like this. And he's going to teach it in such a way that you might be tempted to think, do I love like this? And so that's why I want to cover this whole section because he says, oh, your hearts will be assured. You love like this. And even when you don't understand it, God is greater than your heart. So I'm getting ahead of myself. But verses 11 to 15, love is an evidence of being born of God. He says in verse 11, this is the message you've heard from, um, that's chapter 2. No, that's it. Chapter 3. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. The command to love. This is the message takes us back to the prologue. This is the message we heard from Him and we declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness, none at all. This is from the beginning. It, it points back to what John was encouraging him about in chapter 1. In fact, turn back there. He says, verse 6 of chapter 1, if we say we have fellowship with Him, God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. It, this, this idea that we're in the light now. We have fellowship with God. We love one another. He's going to say in chapter 2, verse 24, let that what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So is, is the Gospel abiding in you? Are you believing the Gospel? Well then, the Son and Father are abiding in you. And he's going to mention the Spirit in chapter 3, verse 24. And he's going to tie it to belief in chapter 3, verse 23. This is the command that we believe. And that's an interesting thing. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but it's worth thinking about as you're sitting here. In one sense, the gospel is an offer. In fact, we're ambassadors, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, pleading with people, be reconciled to God. God made the Son who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. That you'd have life in Him. Come to Jesus. It's a begging. It's a pleading. It's a, it's a don't put it off. Come to Jesus. Now here John is giving us a command. 
He says, this is the command. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever heard it that way, but if you haven't believed in Jesus, He's commanding you to. God is commanding you to believe in His Son. He's giving you a command to obey. And it's a good command, isn't it? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You'll be delivered. He's saying, this is in your own best interest. I'm telling you what to do because it's so good. Well, love is an evidence of being born of God. Jesus' commandment that we love our brothers and sisters, this, is, he, he, this was throughout His earthly ministry. Do you remember at the beginning when uh, the Pharisees said, what's the greatest commandment? And He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other one like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Leviticus. On these two commandments, all of the law of Moses hangs. In other words, you could sum up the whole law of Moses in these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Which John is now saying, love your brother, your sister in Christ. We are to love all men. But what's interesting is that we saw this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, that we're to have a special love for the church, for our spiritual brothers and sisters those persons who, like ourselves, have been born of God. And so he's, he's talking about this is what love looks like. And then he uses a really effective way of teaching. We see it from our early days, right? Sesame Street. You know, you got Grover running near, far, right? And he runs, runs to the back. You remember this? Everybody remembers this, right? Or one of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not the same. This contrast of two things is a very effective teaching method. And Jason gave us a couple last week. Those who practice sin versus those who practice righteousness. Verses 4-7. to seven, Those who are the children of the devil versus the children of God. Verse 10. John's been doing this throughout. And here he says, verse 12, don't be like Cain. So let's, let's compare Cain and Abel. This famous story, the first murderer. And he says in verse 12, don't be like Cain who was an evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? He didn't even have a good reason. His own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So the only reason he murdered Abel is because his, his brother Abel did what pleased God. Offered a sacrifice that pleased God. And Cain hated it. And God didn't look upon Cain's sacrifice with favor. And Cain's deeds were evil, and so he murdered his brother. And John here is saying, I mean, nobody, I mean, you could imagine him, it's a little bit of um, hyperbole. Nobody in the audience would have been like, hey, I want to be like Cain. He's saying, I mean, this is sort of, let's, let's throw hyperbole out there. Hey guys, don't be like Cain. He murdered his brother. The evidence of not loving is he killed him. Here we have hating our brother versus loving our brother. And Cain embodies the opposite of love. Of course, I said it's pointing back to the war from the garden, the descendant of Eve versus the descendant of the serpent. And John identifies Cain's actions with being parallel to the devil in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. John Stott, in his commentary, says Cain is a, quote, prototype of the world, which still manifests the ugly qualities he first displayed. The world is Cain's posterity, so we should not be surprised if the world 
hates us. That's why he goes on in verse 13 to say, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we've passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then what's amazing is the word he uses to talk about Cain's murder is a pretty graphic word in the Greek. It means a a brutal butchering action like you would an animal. And so John is just is pressing in the hyperbole, this graphic story to say Cain did not become a child of the devil by murdering his brother. Rather, he murders his brother because he already is a child of the devil. He already is evil. And the murder is just the evidence that he was a child of the devil. Now, he's doing this by contrast. He's not calling anybody in the audience a child of the devil, per se. He's saying, I'm writing this so that you know you have eternal life. Here's the evidence. You know it's crystal clear. Nobody would argue that Cain was a child of the devil. Everybody would agree. Why? Because the evidence is he didn't love his brother. How do we know? He killed him. For us, he then goes on to say, it's no surprise that the world hates you. And the world wants to kill you. And the world doesn't love you, but you've passed from death to life. You now love your brothers and sisters. You now uh, show the abiding presence of love in your hearts in verses 14 and 15. Unlike these murderers who have no eternal life abiding in them, you have eternal life abiding in you. John's saying that we continually love one another because of gospel gratitude. That is, it's proof we've moved from the sphere of death to the sphere of life. Now, now let's be a little clear here. He's not saying that we gain eternal life by loving others. Does that make sense? He's used Cain as an example, and he said, the evidence he didn't love his brother was he killed him. We have eternal life, and the evidence that we do is that we love our brothers and sisters. It doesn't give us eternal life. It manifests and reveals the abiding presence of love in our hearts. In other words, it's, it's the fruit of this new life in us. John says it's really quite simple. No love, no life. Love and hate are, in this chapter, moral spiritual opposites. Both cannot reside in the heart at the same time. Our, our love for one another is the flower and fruit that indicates eternal life is at the root. So love, he goes on to say in verses 16 to 18, shows up in our actions. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So he starts with the example of Jesus, as it were, verse 16 he says this by this we know love he jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers so we look to jesus our savior and we know that he died for us he demonstrated his love rather than killing us he laid down his life for us he died for us what a contrast and we ought to lay down our lives For the brothers, when we went through the Gospel of Mark, we saw that this was the the capstone of the argument of Mark. Chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Paul says in Romans 5 that God the Father demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our sinning, Christ died for us. 
And, and so Paul says, this is the motive of your love, is that Christ died for you. We love because he first loved us. We serve because he served us. And, and giving of our lives for others in verse 16, when he says we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, it's this idea of willing to daily spend and be spent for the good of our brothers and sisters. Love is really inconvenient. Isn't it? It's hard to love this way. It's easy to say, I love you. But John is saying, when you have an opportunity to, to give to somebody in need, you have the world's goods, whatever this general good is that they need, and you withhold it, you're not loving. And, and, and I would argue that that kind of love is really difficult. It is. It's, it's supernatural. It has to be produced by the Holy Spirit. I don't want to love like that. You know, and it can be overwhelming at times. I mean, all we have to do is look around the Bay Area and see the, the homeless crisis and be overwhelmed. Because we could never meet all of those needs ever. And yet here we're talking in the context of the church. And he says, we need to be willing daily to spend and be spent for the good of our brothers and sisters. Willing to die, as it were, for their good if God should call us upon us to do so the only example i thought about an example this week and the only one that came to mind is you moms out there from the world standards you give up the best years of your life for your children right your prime you have your kids when you're young you raise them and by the time they move out you're old and all your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations maybe they never happen and from the world's perspective, why waste all that time? Why give yourself over to your family and your children and make them a priority? But here we see this is what Jesus did. He died at 33, prime of his life for us. He laid down his life for us. And, and this idea of spending and being spent for the good of brothers and sisters is Christ-like. It's like Jesus. Now, isn't that remarkable? Because the world would say, man, if you want to be a really good Christian, you must need to put your name in light somehow. Maybe you need to write a book or have a blog. Or maybe you need to you know, get a PhD and be a professor or president of a seminary or a pastor of a church. Right? That's what makes you successful or godly, or have assurance that you're a Christian. Well, there's plenty of pastors who are not Christians <laughs> that have disqualified themselves from ministry. There's plenty of people who've written books and been successful that don't know what it means to love their brothers and sisters. But I've seen plenty of Christians who all they did was love their families and love their church and give their best years spending and being spent for one another that, in, that the world will never know. Nobody will ever know until we get to heaven and Christ rewards you for all of that. But that's what he's talking about here. This is the evidence. It's not that you've done great things for Jesus. It's that you've loved your brothers and sisters. And actually, if you love your brothers and sisters, that is the great thing for Jesus because it's laying up your treasure in heaven. 
Incredible. Really incredible. James brings this up in chapter 2 when he talks about faith without works being dead. John here is saying loving others in action is hard. And I think John knows that the question is going to arise when he says, hey listen, little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's a hard. I think that's why he says little children. Because he's, he's wanting to say, I know this is difficult, but this is what the implications are. And then what we do with that is we say, am I loving enough? Am I doing enough good? What if I'm more like Cain than like Jesus? Am I really a Christian? Have you ever felt that way? I have. This is the reality of when we hear the weight of the righteous character of God and the demand of love that it is manifesting the righteousness of God, we think, I can't do it. It's too much. It's overwhelming. And so then what does he do? Verses 19 to 24, he says, love brings confidence before a righteous God. So God empowers us to do what we could never do on our own so that our hearts would be assured. Verse 19, by this we shall know we're of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. Now, that's right after verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And John isn't meant to, to, to make this weigh you down and make you doubt. No, he says, verse 18, this is actually how you know you're of the truth. And it's going to reassure your heart before Him. And if your heart condemns you, verse 19, verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, you're not loving enough. God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. That's incredible, isn't it? Assurance that we are in fact Christians. The reality of self-doubt in the life of a Christian who's serious about obeying God's commands is ever before us. And here's what I think. And We have the New Covenant. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit in verse 24. We talk about the New Covenant a lot in this church. We talk about it at communion. We talked about it in Galatians. We talked about it in Mark. I... We talked about it uh, here in 1 John a couple weeks ago. I showed how all of the poem was connected to the New Covenant. And Phil Howard, we went out to dinner with him and he said, I've never heard someone talk about the New Covenant as much as you did in that sermon. Well, here's what, what the reality is, is we're in the New Covenant, which means we have the Spirit of God. We have the law written on our hearts. We have God inside of us because we believed in Jesus. That means that as New Covenant Christians, we don't want to chase after sin. We've been changed. We want Jesus. We want to glorify Him. We want to obey Him. And so when we hear these commands to, to be righteous and holy and to love and to do this and do that, we sometimes think, I can't do it. I might as well just give up. Am I even really a Christian? Or we just lower the bar. Or we just, you know, out of sight, out of mind. I don't even want to think about it. But what John here is saying is we don't look to our works to see if we conform to God's family, but we look to God who's greater than our heart. Assurance is ultimately external to us. Now John has given us some internal evidences or subjective evidences at the very beginning. This is evidence that you're a Christian as you love one another. But ultimately, if our heart condemns us by all of that, we have confidence 
before God. Why? Because God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. Verse 20. We can put our hearts at ease because God knows us better than we know ourselves. God is greater than our heart. And the path to assurance in the midst of self-doubt is to trust in God. Now, to be clear, if you have true guilt over your sin before God because you have not believed in Jesus, John addressed that in chapter 1, verse 7. In fact, turn over there. He said, if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He's the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So if you have true guilt because you've never bowed the knee to Jesus and believed upon Him, come to Christ. Receive Him today. This is the good news of the Gospel. Now, if you have a false guilt because of your lack of assurance and feelings of inadequacy, especially in the area of loving one another, you need to go back to chapter 1, verse 9, which says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Total and complete forgiveness of our sin through the perfect righteous work of Jesus another. It's external to us. That is really good news, and it creates what John's going to talk about back in chapter 3, verse 21, confidence. Beloved, if our, hearts, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And I love this word here in the Greek, parousia, boldness, confident access. This word, parousia, describes a friendly relationship that confers a right to speak freely so you see this uh you know in in military sometimes permission to speak freely sir no way we don't want to hear what you have to say permission denied right no the person who says you have permission so i can speak what's on my mind i can talk freely and here in the in the in the context it's approaching our father and saying this is what's really going on with me. This is how I really feel. This is where I'm at. We have confidence to come before a righteous, holy God who's light and tell Him these things and draw near to Him and find forgiveness and assurance. This is really good news. We, Hebrews, The author of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 4, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Same word, parousia. And find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. I know I've used this illustration before, but it's, it's worth repeating. I was thinking about it as I was playing the piano. That uh, when we went out to Calvary Church in Brentwood, and I had to play the piano. Uh, and I didn't know I was going to play the piano. And we had uh, our... Uh, uh, our youngest two were not born yet. Our, our middle boy, Liam, was three years old. And imagine sticking your three-year-old with a couple that are strangers, the Pysols. And John Pysol, he was a, a scary-looking dude. He was about seven foot tall. He was 6'5 or 6'4, had a beard, had, you know, Jesus hair. He was a mean-looking dude. And, and Jennifer was helping me sing, and, and, and we're, we're leading music, and Liam doesn't want to sit with a stranger. So he starts walking right up the middle aisle at Liberty High School. 
And I see him toddling up the aisle and, and making noise. And I'm playing the piano and I'm thinking, you're messing up church. Don't you know this is holy time? We're singing to God. What are you doing walking up here? I'm wanting to kick him back down the aisle. Well, he doesn't come to me because he's smart. He went to Jen. Jen's on the mic and she picks him up and scoops him up and starts singing. And then he's happy and she's happy. And the only one not happy is me. I'm sitting there at the piano thinking, what's he doing? He's making, he's embarrassing me. He's, he's messing up church. Well, what did he know? He had confidence that that's his mom and his mom would not cast him aside. He probably didn't have confidence in his dad. He shouldn't have, obviously, because I was going to, you know, Jen was being way more godly than me, a representation of our, our Father in heaven who says, you can come. You can have confidence. You're my child and you can come to me. And there's no time that's inconvenient. There's no time that's, Oh, you know, it's not the right time. I'm really busy doing this right now. No, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's the same word here where he says, when, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, verse 22, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. It's incredible. What a picture. Now, how many of you, and I'm in this boat as well, we think, I got to clean myself up a bit before I start coming to God. You know, I've got, I've got, you know what? God's holy and I've messed up and I've sinned. And let me just try to get this in order and clean this up before I come back to him. You ever done that? I have. No, we can come to our father. And we saw in chapter one that even in the midst of our sinning, Jesus is our high priest at the right hand of the father, cleansing us from our sin. And we're going to see here in verse 24, the spirit is abiding in us. And so we're already in the presence of the spirit and he's the one who's abiding in us and and causing us to look to Jesus and making us like Jesus and making us holy and praying for us when we don't know how to pray the words we ought to pray. All of the Trinity is for us not against us that's why john says we can have confidence john piper said this the one all-embracing commandment of this letter is that we believe and that we love these are the foundations of our assurance because they're the evidence of god's work they're the testimony of a spirit now when you simplify the christian life to those two commands to believe and to love, it makes it sound so easy. And it is very simple. Believe and love. But man, those are the hardest things in the world to do, aren't they? To believe and to love. We doubt and we don't love. We withhold love. We heard it in 1 Corinthians 13. I want to convict you a little bit. Just a little conviction, okay? Just a little. Take 1 Corinthians 13. Let's turn over there. We have a moment. And I got this from Alex Strock. Alex Strock is a pastor in, outside of Denver in Littleton, Colorado, who wrote a book on this chapter on love and talked about the love command. And he said, starting with verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. He said, let's just replace love with your name. Okay? And every time I do this, I wonder if I can even get through it. Ryan is patient. Ryan is kind. 
Ryan does not envy or boast. And think about your own name in there, right? Ryan is not arrogant or rude. Ryan does not insist on his own way. Ryan is not irritable or resentful. Ryan does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Ryan believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Wow, that's convicting. That's the high command to love. And, and, and Paul says this is what it looks like to love with a supernatural love. And you think, man, I don't even believe all things. I'm like super skeptical. I grew up in Vallejo. I grew up poor. It's like the glass is half empty. I'm always thinking something's going to go wrong. And so don't get your hopes up too high because then you're not disappointed. Well, that's not love. That's not what love is described as here. I don't want to be, look what he said, irritable or resentful. I don't want to become a grumpy person because love is not irritable or resentful. Love is patient and kind. Rejoices in the truth. And, and, and man, isn't that, that's convicting. But John, if we go back to 1 John 3, he's talking about the same kind of love. And he gives us great hope that we are not alone because Jesus has died for us in verse 16 we have assurance that we're Christians and he's given his spirit to us in verse 24 so that we can have confidence that our prayers will be answered chapter 3 verse well 23 this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. We have a mutually abiding relationship with all three persons of the Trinity. And John says we can know by experience that Christ is in us by the spirit who's abiding in us. You see, we all want to be loved. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God God is love he's going to say in chapter 4 God is love he's the very definition of love and we love because he first loved us and we all want to be loved and the good news of the gospel is that in Christ we are loved by God and by the Holy Spirit we're empowered to love others our brothers and sisters love is at the heart of the gospel let me just rattle off a few verses that Jesus said. John 13, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you're to love one another. John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Turn over to 1 John 4. So, so John here is not stopping his argument. We're going to stop here in verse 24 about the Spirit given, but he's going to go on to say, verse 7, Beloved, chapter 4, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And that's a... That's an incredible verse. So part of the reason God wants us to love one another, according to John here in verse 12, is that when we love one another, the world sees God's love in us. 
The world sees God in us. Verse 12, it's incredible. God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So this ought to give assurance to us. I heard a Danny Aiken who wrote a commentary on uh, the Gospel of 1 John tells a story of a man that uh, got saved at 50 years old. So he was 50 years old and he had lived a life of drugs and alcohol and been through a number of marriages and admitted that, yeah, it was all my fault and, and, and I suffered the consequences of all of my actions. And then he said, you know, when I thought about it, it, it was interesting because my dad always told me, you'll never amount to anything, you'll never be anything, you'll never, you're, you're going to be a failure. And he said, I pretty much lived up to what my dad said. I became exactly what my dad said, self-fulfilling prophecy. But then Danny Aiken says he got a twinkle in his eye and he said, but five years ago, I found out I have another father. And I found out that what that father says is that I'm loved. What that father says is that I'm accepted in his son. What that father says is I have a home. What that father says is I can be like Jesus. What that father says is I can love one another. I can love God. And so I'm no longer identified in, in fulfilling that prophecy of my earthly father. I'm now living new life because my father in heaven is for me and not against me and I have confidence to draw near to him and he's poured out his spirit who's abiding in me so that I'm not even alone in this and that is really good hope because these commands to love one another apart from God's help we could never do but the kind of help God gives us it's not just sort of partial help is it he gives us his spirit the third person of the trinity God himself he can't give us any more. He gives Himself. This is good. I want to just sort of sit in it, but I think I'm done. So I need to just land the plane. Father, thank You for this time and this Word. This assurance that we have that we are in Christ because of the Holy Spirit abiding in us and because we believe the Gospel. And we can have evidence of this that we love one another. As Christians, we still sin and we sin greatly, but we don't love it anymore. Instead, we love you. Do a work in our church. Save those who don't know you. Bring them to Jesus. May they become a part of the family. We praise You for the testimonies today, the baptisms, the, the work You're doing in the lives of people in our church. We ask that You would do more. That You would save our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones. That You would use us to be on witness as we heard in 1 John 4.12 that as we love one another, Your love would be perfected in us and You would be seen in us. And it would provoke our loved ones to a godly jealousy that they would want what we have. We're not better than them. We don't, we don't have this. We don't deserve it. It's not because we're so great. It's because of what Jesus has done. And so, Father, do this in our church. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.